the Olivet Discourse this morning, and just uh, kind of an introductory slide here. We're titling our time here, Understanding the Times. So, some occasion we'll talk of some of these issues, because all of these things you'll find reference to Bible prophecy, and Bible prophecy is written in such a way that it's like if it was written in a newspaper this week, some things. Now, I've been cautioning us not to find too many fulfillments, however, but the things that we are experiencing now may be things that lead up to fulfillments. I'll stress that throughout the time that we're talking about. Now, most people are afraid of Bible prophecy. Most people think that it's very confusing, so we're going to take our time. In fact, that's the reason I've given you a lot of background. That's why we went to Ezekiel. That's why we went to Daniel. That's why we went well into Matthew, because if you don't pay attention to the context, then uh, it does become very confusing, and it becomes difficult. So I kind of came up, I found this slide. I can explain it the best that I can, but I can't understand it for you. Oh. <laughs> that, that is paraphrased by saying Yes, <laughs> very good. Very good. All right, so we had a, a long introduction, and we spent a lot of time on the setting. In fact, all of last Grace Group semester was pretty much an introduction to the Olivet Discourse, because all last semester we only got one verse into the actual discourse itself. And then last week we finished verse 5, so we're going to pick up in verse 6. We're pretty much at the beginning, so... And I've been uh, showing you what the place looks like, and if we took a trip to Israel, we would uh, look at that, and you could take your own photograph of the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus and the disciples were. And again, just another location on the Mount of Olives. In fact, the Mount of Olives have been much more wooded. Uh, it's hard to tell. Certainly the structures would not be there, and it's probably you're, you're probably... Accurate in that, probably more wooded. We would visit the Garden of Gethsemane, or at least where people think that Jesus' final temptation there took place. And what's prominent today is the East Gate, or it's also called the Golden Gate. It's believed that when Jesus arrives, Zechariah is specific. He will, in fact, it says he will set foot uh, Zechariah 14, on the Mount of Olives. And the book of Acts, when it's explained, the ascension is explained to the disciples, they were on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. And it's expected that the exact place where he ascended will be the exact place that he sets foot, and then he'll cross the Kidron and enter the city of Jerusalem. So that's where the disciples are. So we looked at a setting, and we're in the first part of the discourse itself, beginning in verse 4 through 28, and that gives us a description of a very specific period of time. Jesus calls it the Great Tribulation, or Tribulation, the time of Daniel's trouble, that comes out of Jeremiah. Daniel calls it, the 70th week of Israel's history, very specific, very precise, and Daniel gives us the exact length of it. 
seven or a a week. The Hebrew word is Shabua. It could be a week of days. In this case, it's a week of years. Shabua. So it's very specific. That is the reason why I'm stressing this whole concept because a lot of Bible prophecy teachers draw from Olivet Discourse and say, we're seeing fulfillments today. I don't think so. I think it's looking ahead to that period of time. And I've given you some evidence and reasons for that. And one of the big reasons on a practical level is uh, there's a tendency to sensationalize Bible prophecy, and we want to avoid that. So we're talking about a specific period of time. Jesus also describes it, the early part, as the beginning of birth pangs. So what he's describing here is we have... The analogy that Jesus is using is we have an increase in frequency of these judgments. They begin in a period of relative peace. We're gonna, I'm going to review a little of that. But they will come upon the world with increasing intensity like birth pangs. And the analogy of the end times also is contained in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 where Paul uses the same little phrase, birth pangs. And that's what you have. If you study, we're going to look at some parallels in the book of Revelation. And the way I understand the book of Revelation is similar in terms of this increasing, just calamity after calamity multiplied upon itself, such that at the very end, and Matthew and Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says, had those days not been cut short, basically no man would survive. So it's the most terrible time that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Connie? There's three major sets of judgments in the book of Revelation. What we have in these early chapters, we're going to look at, I think they are parallel to some of the seal judgments. We're going to do that today. So that's kind of an overview of where we're at. So we are looking at the beginning of birth pangs. I see that from verse 4 to verse 14. And last time, we, in fact, last two times, I think we uh, completed our little study on verses 4 and 5, where one of the things that comes is the deception of false Christ. From the very beginning, great deception. And I think what is introduced by a false Christ, and in, in fact, the ultimate false Christ, is a a relative peace. He seems to solve what appears to be the Middle East crisis, or the Middle East problem. Daniel tells us he enters into covenant, the Antichrist does, with the nation of Israel. So they are deceived. The whole nation, at the very beginning, is deceived into believing that they have a contract with this world leader who rises to prominence, in fact, this signing of the covenant probably launches him on the world stage. And he appears to solve the Middle East crisis or problem, and from that, there's relative peace at the beginning. Paul refers to that. They'll say, peace, peace, but then there's no peace. I think that's what the book of Revelation starts off with when it begins to describe it, and I'll show you that in a moment later. So we looked at that last time. There's also going to be the beginning of these disasters. And Jesus also says this is just the beginning. Much more is yet to come. So that's verses 6 through 8. Destruction of disasters. I'm using D here as my alliteration here. 
So we have destruction of wars, first of all, verse 6, and that's where we'll pick up. Using our little timeline of that final week of Israel's history, final week of years, Daniel divides it into two parts. Jesus doesn't make the point, but he gives us an event that Daniel describes in the middle. So I take it all the way through verse 14, that that is a description of the first three and a half years. And then, then it'll pick up after verse 15 and describe the last three and a half years. Just from our perspective, the next major event in terms of the church, the church is removed. And God now, in fact, this is one of the main purposes of this period of time, is to bring Israel into a, a realization that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is their long-awaited Savior. And not just politically. That's why they missed Jesus in the first century. They were looking for a political Savior. And they missed that he came as a spiritual Savior. They will recognize him as a total Savior, both political and spiritual. And one of the main purposes of this period of time is to bring Israel to their knees kicking and screaming, like you and I come to Christ in that way, we resist it, they will be converted during this period of time. These judgments are designed to bring them to the ends of their resources to realize we need somebody beyond what we can do on our on our own. We need a Savior. We need the Messiah. And Book of Revelation picks that up. What Jesus gives us is basically a summary of the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at some of those parallels as we move through that. So these are the beginning of birth pangs, verses 4 through 14. At least this is the way I understand it. So verse 6, another thing besides uh, false Christs, he moves from a spiritual influence during this time to geopolitical Issues, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. The word for war there is more of a, it's not just an individual battle, but looks like major things here that are going on. In fact, he's going to expand that later on here. It's not just, in the next verse, it talks about not just little little wars here. We'll look at that a little bit more. Now, some who try to see parallels today, for example, and see fulfillment. In other words, okay, this is a fulfillment. Here's another war. They seem to be increasing. Well, even if that's the case, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's looking prophetically to that seven-year period of time. There may be things that lead up to it, but I don't think these are them as, as well. So something like this you'll see. In some literature, since World War II, there's been, there's not been a moment without war somewhere on the earth. And some people would point to things like that and say, well, these are signs of the last days. I would caution to be careful with that. But this just gives you perspective. There's always been wars. There were wars in the first century. There's always been periods of turmoil. And another writer, Renee Posh, says in the last three... And he says that for the last 3,400 years, there have only been 268 years of peace. 
There have been 8,000 over that period of time, 8,000 peace treaties lasting under 10 years. So wars is not anything new, and even an increase in wars in the church age is not anything new. So, But that will be a characteristic, and it will be more intensified during that seven-year period of time. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And don't get thrown off. I've mentioned this, so I'll kind of repeat it so that we don't forget it. When he says, you will, he's talking to the disciples. They can apply prophetic truth to themselves, just like we can apply prophetic truth to ourselves. But it's not unusual for the prophets. Isaiah does this, Jeremiah does this, the minor prophets do this. They will speak to their generation or write to their generation and they will speak in the second person as if they are talking to that generation, and they are, but because it's prophetic, they are mainly dealing with an age beyond that generation. And Jesus is doing that. He's a prophet. He's the ultimate prophet. So when he says, you will see these things, take it in that prophetic sense. This is the Olivet Discourse. That's the context. All right? So I see the the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying during this seven-year period of time. And right off from the very beginning, we have wars and rumors of wars. that makes sense? Now, last time I introduced you to the idea, Bible prophecy, you know, we have a curiosity about the future, we have a desire to know what's going to happen, and you see this even in unbelievers, unbelievers... Go look at horoscopes. They fall for these false prophets, the Gene Dixons, you know, these kind of people. Uh, they gather crowds, and they're they're interesting because we have a desire. You know, how things are going to turn out? What, what's going to happen next? Bible prophecy is not written for that purpose to satisfy that inward curiosity. It's to give a perspective from God's perspective of world history. In other words, knowing the outcome gives you comfort, gives you encouragement, gives you strength, gives you motivation. That's the purpose of Bible prophecy. And here we have another little statement in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, I'm going to overview a lot of this as we go through it. See that you are not frightened in the midst of calamity, in the midst of what's going to happen during this period of time. There's going to be tremendous fear. In fact, overwhelming fear. In, in some cases. So this is going to lead us to another purpose or another reason for Bible prophecy. We looked at one and we'll review it in a moment. Say that you are not frightened. And we can summarize that in a moment. First of all, Jesus selects a very interesting word here. It's only used three times in all of the New Testament. So it's very unique. There is a common verb, phobeo, that is translated to be frightened. That occurs at least 92 times in the New Testament. So it's very frequent. In fact, virtually all the other usages of the word relating to be frightened in the verb form is phobeo. Where do we get fear? From the Greek word, phobeo. The noun is very similar. Phobos. Phobos. Alright, fear. That occurs 47 times. It's not It's not that word either. We don't have that word there. That's why I've got a question mark as to what, what is the meaning here. Well, it certainly has to, something to do with fear, and I'm not saying this is a bad translation, 
But I think it also has some other connotations that might be included here. The, the Greek word is throeo. It only occurs three times. One of them here. One of them in Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse in the parallel passage. In other words, the same passage, same occasion that Jesus is speaking in, in Mark's Gospel. T-H-R-O-E-O. Throeo. And there's where it occurs. The other place, besides the Olivet Discourse in Mark and in Matthew, is in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, and that's in the context of the same period of time. It's describing... In fact, I'll show it to you in a moment. It has this idea, not just fear, but a kind of fear that shakes you up. And it could be translated, don't be disturbed. That's how it's translated in 2 Thessalonians 2. In other words, it's going to shake your world up. It's not just a fear, it's intensified fear, you might even say. Frightened, frightening. This is kind of my paraphrase. It's, It's something that's going to throw people in a tailspin. In other words, they are going to get desperate. Throw people in a tailspin. I mean, there's not a translation of that. That's more of a Mondragon paraphrase. There you go, there's the transliteration for you. And here it is in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. It says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord. There's the context. Dealing with the second coming of the Lord, events preceding it. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. What is that? The rapture. The Thessalonians were afraid that they had missed the rapture. They were afraid that their Relatives and friends that had died, they missed the rapture. They expected the coming in their generation. So what Paul is saying is with regard to the coming of our Lord and the gathering to him, the first century church didn't realize that it was going to be at least 2,000 years. And we should not set dates or think, uh, you know, this has to be the generation. You know, we don't necessarily have to be. So the Thessalonians were concerned about these issues that we're talking about. Then verse 2, that you not be quickly shaken, in other words, your world shaken up from your composure, and then here we have the third usage of the word, or be disturbed, or shaken, or thrown in a tailspin, or frightened, as it says in uh, Matthew's account and, and Mark's account. Either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. In other words, there's going to be deception leading up to the spirit of time and there's going to be tremendous deception during that seven year period of time. So don't get disturbed. Don't lose your composure either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now he's talking about preceding here. Well, the purpose of prophecy from verse four last time It's a warning. In fact, what does he say? He says, some translations translated the see to it. And I gave you a lot of other passages where it's actually translated beware or be warned. That is one of the main purposes of Bible prophecy. That you know and, in fact, that you have an understanding of the times in which you live in. And an understanding of the times is an awareness that the possibility that we could be the generation that sees the Lord return. And if so, it should take us beyond the warning stage and into some of the other areas 
of purpose for the Bible prophecy. So we looked at that last time, and we have a similar warning in verses 24 and 25, another warning in, in verse 42. So in Matthew's account, Jesus kind of lays out these purposes for his, his laying out the Olivet Discourse. Not to satisfy necessarily our curiosity about the future, but so that we have a biblical perspective on all of time, including what God is going to do in the future. And part of it is warning, because this is going to be a terrible period of time. And things leading up to it are going to be terrible as well. Now, in this context, it's to strengthen us, so that we're not thrown in a tailspin. That we're not frightened, that we're not fearful. We can face it knowing that uh, God is working, and he will work in this period of time to accomplish a plan. In fact, that's what's following here. So part of the purpose is to strengthen the believer. And there's other verses in other passages that we could look at outside of the Olivet Discourse. So two purposes right off the bat. But notice, he gives a reason why we should not be frightened. For those things must take place. Must. How many of you know the Greek word there? It's a very simple Greek word. I bet Bill knows it. No? Don't remember? Jim, you don't remember? The other Jim? Once I flash it up there, he's, oh, yeah, 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 I should have known that. There it is. Ah, yeah, okay, yeah, day. Kind of like D-A-Y, but the Greek transliteration is D-E-I, day. Very simple. In many contexts, it just has the idea of something that must take place for whatever reason. It just must happen. If I drop this clicker here, what must happen? It will fall. It must fall because of the law of gravity. So it's used in a general context. But in some places, and I think this is one of those places... It has more than just something that must happen, like, by chance or, you know, by natural law. But it, in some contexts, it has the idea of divine necessity. In other words, this is part of a plan. And because it's a divine plan, it must happen. These things that Jesus is describing are part of a broad plan. That's why it's prophesied in so much detail in the Old Testament and by the book of Revelation, because these things must take place. Divine judgment is part of God's plan, and that is the main thing that's taking place in this period of time. And knowing that these things must take place, we can, obviously, emotionally, we're going to respond to these things, but we can step back and say, okay, these things must take place, I need to fortify myself, I need to be strengthened, I need to be aware that this is part of it, there's going to come an end to it, God's going to give me enablement to be able to face all of that, that's the strengthening that we can gain from Bible prophecy. So when you read Bible prophecy, don't get frightened by it, but in fact realize that these things must take place, and if they must take place, God has a plan for them, And since I know other things about what he has a plan for, he has a plan for me to spend eternity with him, and all these things are temporary, but they must take place. So, divine necessity. The implication, I've already given it to you, the divine plan includes the judgment of the tribulation period. 
These are not just calamities. They're not just natural events. God is going to use natural events. But their timing and their execution are going to be done by divine necessity and it's part of what God is doing, bringing judgment. When Messiah came the first time, he came for salvation. When he comes the second time, he's coming for judgment primarily. Now, salvation is still available, and salvation, it'll be the focus, will be the salvation of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is going to turn to their Messiah. God is going to use divine judgment on the earth to bring the nation of Israel and Gentiles as well, a new group, but they will see the judgment of God and trust in Jesus as Messiah. So that's the little word day there. The last part of verse 6, these things must take place, underline it on your Bible, mark it with your markers, these things must take place, but that is not Yet the end, there's more to come, lots more. This is just the beginning of birth pangs. So if you think that is awful and horrific, strengthen yourself, because more is coming, more is on the way. And for those that lived during that period of time, this will be crucial for them. So if I understand correctly, Revelation deals with pangs and... Yes, mainly. from I take from uh, chapter 6 to chapter... The end of chapter 18, Daniel 70th week. Same period of time Jesus is doing. I'm going to show you some parallels. We'll get there. But the end is not yet. So, not only is it by divine necessity, but there's much more to come. So, fasten your seatbelts. Because we're going to crash. So, the purpose of uh, prophecy is to warn. It's also to strengthen. Thirdly, it's to prepare. Get ready. Be prepared. There's lots of scriptures that encourage us preparation. And that's also in that verse 6. In other words, more to come. That means I need to get ready. I need to be prepared. I need to learn what God has in store so that when they do come, I'm aware, okay, this is this must take place. These things are part of this divine plan. And I'm preparing so that when it does hit, it's not a shock to me. When events take place, shouldn't be a shock. Things that we see in our culture today should not be a shock, a shock if you know Bible prophecy. Make sense? And we'll get to verse 8, but it uh, kind of reiterates and helps to prepare, because he's talking, this is just the beginning of birth pangs. Just the beginning. If you think these are awful, wait to see what comes. This is just the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. And again in verse 43 to 44, in fact, why don't we read those real quick. Notice the element of preparation there. Somebody want to read those two? Go ahead, Connie. But know this. Alright? Okay, he gives a parable. What, what's the essence of that parable? Preparedness. Get ready. You don't know when the thief is going to come. The analogy, you don't know when a thief is coming to break into your house. But be prepared for it. Keep reading. Be ready. Preparedness. That's why Jesus is giving them these warnings and elements of strengthening to prepare us so that we're not thrown in a tailspin. Make sense? Verse 7. Verse 7. Verse 
24-7. We have the destruction of wars and the coming of rumors of war, verse 6. Now we have a specific description of those wars in verse 7. For nation will rise against nation. So there's going to be individual wars. Uh, Russia invading Ukraine, maybe. All right? Iran overshadowing Iraq, maybe. You know, those kinds of things. One nation against another. But notice the other part there. And kingdom against kingdom. What is in view there? Uh, no, not, I, don't think, I don't think so much. No, I, I think the distinction here is individual nations, one against another. But I think what's in view here are... Alliances. Alliances. In other words, entire alliances of nations against alliances of nations. Because that's what we have described in the book of Revelation. The kings of the east. In other words, it seems a an alliance of the kings of the east come. And there seems to be an alliance of peoples from the north that will include probably Russia and probably some Muslim nations. And some Kings from the south, uh, they're all part of, these seem to be alliances. At least that is a possible uh, understanding of that passage. Now certainly, in all time, there's a battle between the spiritual kingdom and the worldly kingdom. I mean, that's always present. So that's going on as well. But I think in this context, more specifically, I think it's more these alliances. So when it says nation against nations it seems reasonable to take it one nation against another. So there's going to be individual skirmishes all over the world, and these are going to be worldwide. In fact, one of the stresses of the book of Revelation is what's described is worldwide. This is why we don't hold to the preterist interpretation. The preterists, remember they tried to, in fact, you tell me, what is the preterist view of Bible prophecy? It all happened, and it all happened primarily when? First century. First century. Well, you had individual nations, but you didn't have the Roman Empire being invaded by another empire. And, in fact, very rarely have we had kingdom against kingdom, where we have empires and alliances of nations in fact, it wasn't until like World War One and World War Two, and in that time frame, people were thinking, we're in the last days here, you know, we have these alliances, at least two alliances that are battling in World War One, and again in World War Two, alliances of nations. And during the tribulation from the book of Revelation, uh, Old Testament prophecy, and I think hinted at at least here, if not explicit, probably empires or alliances of nations going against other nations. So, not in the first century was that the case, and rarely in church history. So we're not seeing that, we're seeing some alliances here, but we don't see World War III yet. And that probably won't take place till that seven-year period of time. We'll see perhaps individual, you know, hot spots and that sort of thing today. But we're going to have both during the seven-year period of time. This is why I reject, or one of the reasons, several reasons why we reject the preterist approach. Okay, turn to the book of Revelation 6. Okay, this is where I think the description of what's happening on earth begins in the book of Revelation. And there's some parallels. Uh, we won't get to all of the parallels, but I'll introduce the parallels. 
and then we'll pick up next week, and we'll see these parallels with the Olivet Discourse. You're going to see a clear parallel. Jesus is just giving us an overview or a summary. If you want the details, go to the book of Revelation. Somebody read verses 1 and 2. Now, oh, I'm sorry, 6. I thought I mentioned chapter 6 is the beginning of this period of time on earth. It goes all the way to the end of chapter 18. So much of the prophecy of the book of Revelation deals with this seven-year period of time. Now, chapters 4 and 5, a heavenly scene, and that may include you and I, after the rapture, we may be some of those that are worshiping before the throne, more than likely. Chapter 6 puts us back on earth. So this is tribulation description. Who's got it? Mary Lee? Then I saw, as the Lamb broke open one of the seven seals, and as in a voice of thunder, I heard one of the four living creatures call out, Come! And I looked and saw there a white horse whose rider carried a bow, and crowned was given him, and he rode forth conquering and to conquer. Okay, we have these seven seals. And John now has a is seeing a series of visions of the opening of this scroll, really, that had seven seals on it. Opens the first one, and now he sees, or this revelation concerning a white horse. Now, because it's white, because of a few other little details, some scholars think that it's a picture of Christ right at the very beginning. But in the total context, I think it's pointing more with some of the other parallel passages that speak of that other prince that comes riding. He's a deceptive prince. He's riding on a white horse. People think, oh, this is the guy in, you know, shining armor in a, on a white horse. This is the Messiah. So I think it's a description of the false Messiah, the Antichrist. This is the first seal judgment. It's open. And the imagery is he's writing. He has every capability. He has the bow, but he doesn't have to utilize it. He's the one that brings in this peace. He's the one that is the negotiator. He's the one that is able to, through negotiation and his eloquence, be able to bring about this treaty, at least with the nation of Israel, this uh, covenant, and other nations as well and seemingly bring in peace. Now we have peace. We've been waiting for you for thousands of years. I take it that he's Antichrist. And the parallel is, is what Jesus says, the false what? Christs. And I think this is a picture of the ultimate one that we talked about when we were in those verses. So the first of these, there's actually seven, but the first six are in chapter six. First one is peace. And then we have another parallel with the next, with the passage we're looking at today in Revelation 3 through 4, when he broke the second seal. And the reason I flesh it up here is we have to look at some of the details here. Uh, it's a little cryptic and it's hard to understand, so let me explain it. I heard the second living creature. Now these living creatures are angelic creatures. They're described in chapter 4 and... They're explained in a little bit more 
detail there, so it refers back to Revelation chapter 4. But there are angelic creatures. In fact, angels are very prominent in the book of Revelation. God is going to use angels to effect a lot of these judgments. You have them right off the bat here. I heard the second living creature saying, Come, inviting John to this vision. And another, a red horse. What was the first one? White. White horse. Now we have a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. Okay, so that kind of speaks of the peace of that first horse. This one takes peace away. What does that mean? Wars and rumors of wars. Nations against nations. Kingdoms against kingdoms. See the parallel? That's the point I'm making. So he takes peace from the earth that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. See that? Sword is given to him. That's war. So we have this, the red horseman. There he is with his sword. Now the Greek word is makaira, and it was used in contexts, in fact, uh, of an executioner's sword, but it was also a battle sword. Served both purposes. It was a sword that a soldier would use. And soldiers were used to bring executions, but they would also use their same swords for the purpose of warfare. And that's a reconstruction, or a, I don't know if it's a, I don't think it dates in the first century, but that's what it would have looked like. It's a long sword. In the New Testament, there are two words. There's one for a little short dagger. Both were used. In, the short one was used in hand-to-hand combat. The large one is to just kind of work your way in battle, executioner's court. That's what we have here. It's in battle sword, not just executioner. So what we have is peace and war. The removal of peace, the second seal, and that's what Jesus is talking about. See the parallel there? Just to put it in your mind here. Destruction of war. These come out of my Revelation slides. I take chapter 6 of the book of Revelation as kind of a panoramic view of the entire seven years. Now, there's different ways, and Jeff and I, too bad he's not here so I could needle him, but he and I kind of debate some of the chronology, and it's not clear. Jeff could be right. I won't say that when he's here. (laughs) But what I'm more comfortable with is I think the first seal you're going to have throughout, you're going to have False messiahs promising, well, I can solve this issue, I can solve that issue, and uh, that's going to go throughout. And I think we have a panorama. Shortly after that, we're going to have war. And we have it in the Alba Discourse, and we have it in the book of Revelation. Alba Discourse 6, 3 through 4. So this is on our little timeline, and I'll include some of the others as we get further in. So we have the description of wars. We need to stop at that point, and we'll pick up in the next part of the verse, because we have more destruction of disasters, not only disasters caused by war, but in the same verse we have a little phrase, devastation of famines and earthquakes. And those are parallel. In fact, if you want to preview it, go ahead and read the next seal judgment in the book of Revelation chapter 6. We'll pick up at that point. Concluding thought here. Eschatology is practical. And as we saw today, be warned and also be strengthened. That's the purpose of what we're doing here. Who wants to close first? Jenny. 
Amen. Appreciate that prayer.